This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. that for every one new regulation, two old regulations must be eliminated. The people in the media heard me say that during the campaign many, many times. As a result, the never-ending growth of red tape in America has come to a sudden, screeching, and beautiful halt. A sudden, screeching, and beautiful halt. President Trump evoked the image of slamming on the brakes perhaps in some kind of car chase scene out of a 1970s vigilante cop flick, to describe Executive Order 13771, signed just a few days after he was sworn in. Mixed metaphors aside, there's something to that imagery. Promises to roll back federal regulations have long been a conservative bromide, just as the automobile on the open road has served as a potent symbol of a political culture that celebrates individual autonomy above all else. Yet, without the federal government's push for stronger safety regulations in the first place, who's to say whether those metaphorical breaks could be relied upon? Lee Vinzel's Moving Violations, published in 2019 by Johns Hopkins University Press, tells the story of the automobile in the United States through the rules, laws, and regulation that have shaped its civic and technological character from the outset. Vinsel, assistant professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech, shows how different communities coalesced around cars and the systems surrounding them in order to curb, puns abound, their abundant hazards. From accidents to emissions, the book considers an array of research practices and technological fixes that shaped perceptions of risk 
and the public good alike over the course of the 20th century. Vinsel paddles upstream against the tide of voluminous ink decrying regulation as an exogenous obstacle to innovation and the American way, bolstered by his compelling historical argument that regulation has, more often than not, fostered innovation in the auto industry. But that's enough mixing metaphors. I started us off by asking Vinsel, why cars? First of all, I don't, I've never been like a fan of cars. Cars themselves don't interest me. Um, I, I got into this subject um, because I was a member, I came into grad school at Carnegie Mellon as a member of a climate change policy center that was funded by the National Science Foundation called the Climate Decision-Making Center. And I was one of really the only graduate student historian. And my advisor, David Hounschel, was a part of it. He's a historian. But the rest of the people were climate scientists and economists and engineers and you know folks of this sort, not, not people from the humanities or social sciences generally. And what we became interested in was how we'd use something called performance standards. So this is like crash tests and tailpipe emission standards from cars to shape technological change. And, you know, the reason they were interested in this question is because we could still use those kinds of standards to deal with climate change. Uh, and, and shaping greenhouse gases, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so um, really, you know, it was my advisor had some NSF money to um, uh, look at the, the airbag and the catalytic converter uh, on cars as examples of using performance standards in the past and to get into understanding how they worked and how they didn't work, why, you know, you might say emission standards work better than safety standards, for instance. So that's like one way of talking about it. I mean, the other way to say is like initially my dissertation was um, I wanted to write about the energy crisis of the 1970s. And suddenly I found out that my advisor had money to send me to Washington, D.C. to do this research. And I was like, eh, I guess I'll just add fuel economy standards to airbags and uh, emission standards to, uh, to call it a dissertation. So it's also about accidents, I think, and just luck and how things turn out. Over the course of reading for my history of technology field on my PhD qualifying exams, I learned that historians love railroads. They embody all kinds of ideas about the modern state and even the very experience and aesthetics of modern life. So I asked Vinsel, what makes studying automobiles and roads different from studying trains and rails? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the history of, you know, the historiography of regulation, the history of writing about regulation, the systems that people have tended to focus on are things like railroads and electrical systems, which are large technological systems, like you're pointing out. But the other thing is that they're basically owned by the firms that ru- operate them and run them, right? So if I want to regulate the, um, the railroad for safety, I'm regulating the firms that are using those systems as well. And that's a totally different uh, setup than automobiles where, yes, 
big companies are making these technologies, but then they're owned by millions of human beings uh, who are running around and who have desires of their own and ideas of their own. Um, and so it just makes makes for a kind of more complex picture because, you know, as a regulator, you always have to ask the question, like, is it better to control the drivers uh, or to go after the firms? Another thing Vinzel talks about is how cars and the laws that regulate them assume different and shifting conceptions of human nature or constructions of the subject. The earliest kind of construction of the subject I look at in the book, and by, and, you know, by construction of the subject, I just mean like ideas about how humans operate and you know, something we might call like a philosophical anthropology, ideas about human nature, um, is something called the autofiend, which is a character that um, develops in the, you know, the first years of the 20th century, around 1900. And this character is in poems, in magazine articles, in on postcards. And basically it's always a... Um, it's it's a young rich man dressed up in automobile getup, you know, goggles and uh, leather jackets and everything you needed when you're riding around in open-bodied vehicles. And you know, these people were like ca- causing destruction. So you know, one postcard I show shows this kind of grinning man, and behind them on the road, you just see a trail of dead or dying bodies, human and non-human animals. Um, and so, you know, what interests me about the fiend concept, and you see it too, there were bicycle fiends earlier, same kind of characters in popular culture, is how it draws on a kind of older religious, spiritual conception of wrong behavior, you know, like they're demonic characters. Um, and by the 20s, what you see is, uh, you know, I say in the book, there's a kind of battle for a moment between two more scientific conceptions, scientific in quotation marks, maybe conceptions of human nature. The first is coming from psychologists, so um, kind of psychotechnicians and applied psychologists the, coming out of like Hugo Munsterberg types. Um, who really are trying to like, you know, come up, measure human reaction speeds using driving simulators and stuff like that. And the one that really wins out because of the insurance industry is basically Dewey in progressive education, um, which, you know, uh, becomes driver's ed. Um, and that, you know, that is a paradigm, uh, to use an old word that lasts for, you know, 40 plus years, you know, is the idea that through education, we can shape the subject and and make them safer, more reliable, more responsible humans behind the wheel. And that's only, you know, only with people like Ralph Nader is that way of thinking about people really overthrown where Nader thinks that humans are just naturally fallible. Like they're going to have accidents no matter how well they're trained. So I think that, you know, this is important to me because when we write about technology, so often we focus on the stuff, you know, it's about the history of how this stuff came to be, especially these new things. And I think that it's important to always keep in mind, like how we're thinking about the users 
And I think you can see written into the background of the history of regulation is really changing ways of thinking about people. If constructions of people were in flux, so were people's own perceptions of what constituted a risk. Social movements acted on risk perceptions to build enduring structures, and I had Vinsel unpack some examples. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of examples from the 20s that um, I think we can talk about that kind of live on. So the first is that when is just the concept in the 20s that part of what's creating danger is disorder. And so you have to, to organize the street um, and cities in order to make traffic more reliable and also more safe. And this goes hand in hand. The same people who are working on making the street more organized are also pushing progressive driver's education. So these two things go hand in hand. Like you have to train up the person to be more reliable, but um, you know, only you have to before you can really make them reliable. You have to make the city organized and dependable, uh, so they know how to get around it. And so you know, the question then becomes like, well, where are you going to get the knowledge to make order? of the street. And what you see is that these folks, these engineers and insurance executives were drawing on the railroad industry to do it. So if we think about traffic lights, for instance, traffic lights are a technology uh, that comes directly from the railroad. Um, you know, you had electric signals on, on railroads and, um, you know, some of the early firms and inventors around street Traffic lights for cars were um, in, were originally railroad firms. So um, you know, and then that lives on, even though kind of the way they were thinking about humans at that time fades for a variety of reasons. The technical, the technologies that they set up with that thought in mind, like you know, electric signals, uh, continue on. Uh, you know, another, another quick example is, you know, psychologists during this period are, are introducing drive, written driving tests to try to weed out accident-prone drivers. Well, the notion of accident-proneness kind of falls out of professional psychology for a variety of complicated reasons, but those driving tests live on, right? And so that's, I think that's an interesting thing about bureaucracy in society is how certain conceptions of risk or humans give birth to practices and technologies. And even when the original ideas kind of fade away, the practices and technologies live on with us. Historians love to talk about lost alternatives and outcomes that were far from obvious or inevitable. The traffic light, it turns out, is a great example of a technology that could have looked much different depending on where you were in the absence of any standards. Okay, so <clears throat> thank you for bringing up this example because this was like one of the things, you know, my dissertation covered 1966 to 1988 um, and it was only when I was a postdoc, for some reason I was moved to just write the, you know, a history that covered the entire history of the automobile. And it was, I started looking at like the teens and 20s and 30s and I started finding things like this uh, factoid that you mentioned that was like, I was like, I couldn't believe I hadn't read about it anywhere, you know? And I was like, all right, I can do this. Um, so what you're talking about is in, in along Fifth Avenue in New York City, they put up these early traffic signals 
And one of the guys um, who did it, uh, let me find his name, John, Dr. John A. Harris, uh, described it in a journal article. And he said, you know, the signals flashed from the towers indicate the following. Yellow, traffic moves on Fifth Avenue and all cross traffic from side streets stop. Red, all traffic stops. And then green, um, you know, it proceeds along the the other streets. And so you have this, this system where red means stop, but yellow means the cross streets move and green means the, you know, the, the main streets move. And so, you know, part of it is, and, you know, there's other quotations of this sort from like Herbert Hoover and sort, is that you had, there was no way for you to depend on what rules meant or even what signals meant when you went from town to town, right? If you're driving from Philadelphia to New York and Philadelphia has a different standards for what lights mean, you know, there's just no reliable way to move around. And, you know, Herbert Hoover says he sent someone from New York to California and someone from California to New York, and they end up arrested like dozens of times because there's such different rules in different places. So this is one of the places where I think, you know, we just kind of underestimate the amount of work that had to do during this period to kind of regularize, regularize things uh, on the road. Vinsel's book highlights the different groups of people driving, oh God, the puns, automotive change. And I asked him to describe what these looked like in the early days. Yeah, I mean, the, the fascinating thing is it's not the automakers, right? Like the automakers are barely involved during this period. And I think later, when we think about automobile regulation, traditionally we think of wars between people like Ralph Nader and GM or whatever. Um, and earlier, the, the, the companies just aren't there. So who's, who is it? Well, it's city managers, engineers, insurance executives, sometimes school teachers and educators, um, statisticians. I mean, there's a lot of people there, and they're all kind of progressive middle-class progressive do-gooders who are trying to make the city a better place is, is where they're coming from. On the earlier theme of alternatives rather than inevitable outcomes, I asked Vinsel to highlight some of the most radical technologies proposed to keep cars in check. Yeah, I mean, I think the clearest one is speed governors. So those are technologies that regulate top speeds. And uh, there was a, an, a law introduced, I want to say it's around 1920. I'd have to look it up to get it right. Uh, but it, they, there was a law introduced in Cincinnati to, that would require speed governors to be put on all cars that, that entered the, um, the city. Um, and basically the automotive interests, users and, and other kinds of folks uh, you know, the, the auto clubs got together and successfully fought it off. But I think that's probably the most kind of extreme example. Um, and, you know, there's there's other, you know, like in Britain, there's that, you know, the old law where someone had to like walk in front of a car with a red flag. Um, yeah, that's pretty extreme. And then you have, you know, some places uh, in the United States where you just have total bans, like certain kind of like resort islands and stuff where there's no there's no automobiles. I think the speed governor is kind of like the clearest alternative that could have come to be. Mm -hmm. 
Cool, cool. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, oof, that's mm, a really it's a bad. it's unavoidable. I'm afraid with this oh, topic. Oh god. <laughs> One pivot point of the book is a chapter that looks at the emerging field of impact biomechanics, which combined military research and domestic technological development into some admittedly wacky apparatuses. This was another thing I discovered as a postdoc that, I mean, there had been a little bit written about it, but I didn't think enough in the history of the automobile that encouraged me to, to write the book the way I did. And so these are, the impact biomechanics is basically the field that studies how forces affect the human body. And I argue that, um, that impact biomechanics kind of was a, uh, uh, an instance of like whatever we call it, multiple independent discovery. There were there were a number of people in the 30s and 40s who started looking at this topic uh, for a variety of reasons. Though you know a strong shaping uh, force in, in it was military aviation. So a lot of it involves moving military aviation research, safety research into the domestic sphere around cars. Um, so one of the, you know, one of the, the stories I most like, uh, you know, there are so, such wacky stories around this kind of stuff Two are, uh, I like to look at Wayne state university and the research they were doing there. Um, there was, uh, <clears throat> one of the things they did at Wayne state is they took an elevator shaft out of an, an ele- or took an elevator out of an elevator shaft, uh, rather, and started dropping, uh, cadavers down the elevator shaft. Um, they apparently one of the things was a kind of ejection seat from a, uh, a yeah from a jet, and they would put it upside down and uh, kind of bang cadavers' heads into a steel plate from various heights. Um, sadly, they also did some research I think would be kind of considered unethical now with animals where they were using hammers and uh this kind of elevator shaft to to do research on drug dogs living drugged uh dogs and other animals uh the other kind of more famous example is colonel john stapp i argue that stapp was he's a medical doctor in the military, and I think he was probably the most important figure in the history of the impact of auto mechanics and auto safety. Um, but he was famous for like shooting himself on rocket sleds across the desert at like 600 miles per hour and coming to a f- complete stop in you know less than a few seconds. Um, and just the horrific things he would experience, his eyes would turn into massive b- bruises. All the blood would come rushing, you know, slamming into the front of his body, basically. So, I mean, you know, I just, I, it's kind of grotesque, but also fascinating how this, um, how this developed. And then, you know, the, the, the last part of your question, um, it's, it's the impact biomechanics people, like for instance, at Wayne State, were working with the automakers, taking research money from the automakers. And they were very conservative. They weren't interested in calling out the automakers or putting pressure on them or anything. And so, you know, it's really people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Ralph Nader. If you read Nader's Unsafe at Any Speed and you kind of read between the lines, what he's doing is drawing on the research of these these researchers that they were unwilling to call out the automakers, but he uses their research to make a case that the automakers are not moving quick enough on safety technologies. 
So it's really how activists use in existing information that creates change rather than kind of just scientific research on its own. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Frequent presidential candidate and auto safety activist Ralph Nader looms large in Vinzel's account, particularly his book, Unsafe at Any Speed. I asked him more about the book. How did it partake of and shape a genre of consciousness-raising literature in the 1960s? To what extent were critiques of the automobile critiques of mass culture? And, relevant to our crisis today, how did they mobilize the language of epidemiology to define social problems? Yeah, it, it, these are both, this is great. Um, so I do think you see a lot of writing, critical writing about the car emerge in the 50s from intellectuals. The clearest example is kind of John Keats's book, The Insolent Chariots. Um, which just goes after kind of over-designed automobiles with fins and stuff and sees it really as a kind of mark of unhealthy decadence, I think is one way to put it, but also like classless decadence, right? Like this is poor taste. Um, and Keats had written a number of other books uh, about the suburbs and um, and progressive education as well that were just kind of like sneering indictments of those things. And he always always coming from this kind of place of like upper, you know, uh, you know, high culture distaste with that. I also think, you know, you can look at like Nabokov's Lolita and the role of the car there. I think Nabokov has a slightly more ambivalent relationship with automobiles, but you see a lot of um, yeah, kind of sneering at American culture in that book as well. So I think Nader's, you have to put Nader's book in that moment where there's other critiques of the automobile emerging um, that, that kind of come from an intellectual place and worries about what's happening with, uh, with the United States. It's not, you know, it's a worry about the nation as much as about an individual technology. Um, and then, you know, I think that the first... Uh, head of the safety agency that emerges from the law passed around Nader called the National Highway Safety Bureau is this guy named uh, William Haddon. And Haddon was a medical doctor and who uh, studied epidemiology. You know, it was a, basically an epidemiologist. And, uh, you know, the, he was not alone. There were other medical doctors doing uh, epidemiological research around the car. 
and framing it as a public health crisis. Nader would selectively draw on this rhetoric when he thought it was useful and, and use it. But I think it was one, the fact that you could create this kind of public health frame, I think was really important for making the, the safety movement a success because it framed it in different terms than kind of like anti-corporate or uh, you know, kind of activist regulatory rhetoric and made it about health. And I, I don't think it's, it's surprising that Johnson, draw, when Johnson signs this law and creates the National Highway Safety Bureau and the first safety standards effectively, um, that he appoints Haddon, this medical expert, and that you know, he, he draws on the language of, 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 of a medical problem, of medical crises, Johnson does in his, in his speech. So I don't think that's you know surprising because it's kind of a safe way to move uh, politically a kind of more safe way to move than you know going after corporations in our very liberal culture. So at this point in the book, we've got a bureau. Now what does it do? Vinsel follows the story of Standard 201 to explore the nascent regulatory landscape. So Standard 201, um, it was one of these stories I found in the archives that just kind of blew me away. And it was, you know, no one had, this was in my dissertation. No one had really written about it in any meaningful way. And I found the docket around it, which is like all the paperwork, both the proposal of the rule and then, you know, all the industry resistance to it, all the paperwork they sent in. And it just kind of allowed me to tell this story. So, okay. In the, Standard 201 is... Uh, titled Impact Interior Protection, uh, or it might be Interior Impact Protection, either way. Um, and what it does is it's it's the rule that um, it's supposed to protect you if you were to get in an accident and slam against, like, uh, the instrument panel or anything in the front of the car. Uh, the way they would do this is they would use dummies to to I, these are not crash dummies they're mannequins they would bend them forward in the seats and see what objects the head, dummy's head could hit they would then pull out that material from the car and then they would slam a kind of styrofoam head form into it at 30 miles per hour and measure the g forces that the the head form experienced using a accelerometer now why this is important is because this is really the standard where the philosophy of Nader and Haddon and Moynihan uh, called crashworthiness was going to come into the regulation. So it's the thing that the automakers most hate, and it's where the activists most want to put pressure on the automakers is to make crash protection, you know, crash, yeah, crash protection more uh, safe, to make crashes safer. So the way you would do that is to minimize the G-forces that the head experiences. Um, now, the, now, the important detail here in the, the way regulation works is that the, the standards themselves were not defined in the law that created the National Highway Safety Bureau. The, the Bureau had to create the rule and publish it and allow comment on it. So through that process, which you know you might consider kind of more democratic than just setting the rule in stone initially, uh, the automakers have room to push back. So what I look at in that chapter is really how the, the, 
agency puts forward a rule that it hopes will be kind of revolutionary in terms of safety, and then how the automakers uh, push back on that and end up weakening the rule by the end of the process. The Clean Air Act was a watershed moment in the history of regulation, and I asked Vinsel how it changed the dynamics of federal auto regulation. Auto companies pushed back until they realized they could find workarounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways into this question. I mean, the first is like as they're setting up the Clean Air Act amendments of 1970, and the, the what follows. There's a big question about whether the corporations are really doing due diligence to try to figure out a solution. Um, and you know the way the rules set up, they can ask for an extension on getting emissions down by the ninety percent that's mandated by law, and that ends ends up opens up a kind of dialectic where they're going to argue that they cannot meet the technological uh, technology, you know, the the, the standard. So that you know that then like part of what I'm looking at is how they um, they uh, push back and how the government ends up creating a kind of surveillance uh, program to look at what the automakers are doing and kind of look over their shoulder to see whether or not they can in fact meet the standard. Um, but you 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 know the way that you're asked your question, you might also be asking about cheating. Is that more what kind of interests yeah, you? Yeah, okay. yeah, so yeah. Surveillance is set up. How does how does cheating happen? Yeah. And then you know what's like what's the perception of what's going on, and the, maybe the misperceptions <laughs> on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what I want to deal with in the book is like what do regulatory standards set by law or through government rulemaking, what, do they, what kind of behavior do they incentivize? Because the hope is that they're going to incentivize the companies to create good technologies that make us healthier and safer, right? That's the point. Uh, but the other way of looking at it, if, they're, if, they're, if they have bad intentions, it also incentivizes, incentivizes cheating, Yeah. And, and so they come up with really clever workarounds very early on in the process that were end up become, becoming called defeat devices. Um, and some of them are clever, you know, like the defeat, the, the emissions controls would only work, for instance, if the hood was open. Because they know that, you know, what um, they know that in a test, the way the test standards are defined, the hood has to be open to run the, to do, to do the test. So they just, you know, make it, and they use other things like some of the, you know, where this leads to, of course, is like the BMW, Volvo, uh, Daimler emission scandal, where eventually what happens is first it's General Motors that does this in the 90s, but they start using computers eventually to psych out the test. Um, you know, and that's just, you know, like we, t- there's teaching to the test in in schools too, right? I mean, this is just something you can do is, if you become focused on whether your technology passes the test, and that's your only question, that kind of leaves behind whether you're actually, you know, trying to reduce emissions or you're just trying to fake out the test somehow. During the Reagan years, automobile regulation became a paradigm for a new economic perspective and doctrine amidst fears of waning competitiveness. 
While there is an abundant literature on neoliberalism as an ideological revolution, Finsel tries to explain exactly why these ideas were so appealing at the time. In the 70s, a number of experts who were looking at automobile regulation, including this guy, uh, Dick John, who's the historian Richard John's dad, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> so Richard John's a historian of uh, communications. Um, and yeah, his dad, Dick John, worked for the Department of Transportation in, um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a long time. Just retired recently, actually. And Dick John, you know, when, when they were studying basically the economic effects of regulation in the 70s, he became worried that, you know, the pressure from uh, regulations, safety and environmental regulations were actually causing, you know, were threatening the economic health of the firms. And it was actually they, his team kind of realized that Chrysler was in really bad financial trouble um, well before it was public knowledge through this kind of regulatory economics research. So, and you know, and then I try, what I try to do in that chapter, I mean, I try, I don't use the word neoliberalism, even though that's kind of what it's about uh, is kind of, you know, Austrian economics and the Chicago school and the economists that come out of that. What I really try to, to do is kind of, understand why their ideas were so appealing to people who are looking at these issues. Uh, because I think there was a lot of worry from different quarters that, you know, we just went through the 60s and early 70s, which was like a massive expansion of the regulatory state. And they were worried about, you know, the kind of downward pressures it had on American companies and therefore on American growth. Um, and, you know, in that place, the way I try to put Reaganomics, where, you know, Reagan, the Reagan revolution, where they're trying to cut back on regulation and allow firms to surge forth and be innovative and all these kinds of things uh, in historical perspective and, and, you know, understand why people would have found it appealing. Going forward, a kind of innovation speak became the lingua franca for executive rulemaking, and Vinsel, whose other work is aimed toward the history of maintenance as a critique of this fixation on the new, has a lot of thoughts about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is a number of people are working on the history of innovation. My colleague here at uh, Virginia Tech, Matt Wisnowski, is one of them. And, you know, I, we, Andy Russell and I do it as part of our maintainers project, Lightly, is to write about how innovation in the post-war period as a concept becomes so uh, ubiquitous, but also I would say hegemonic in a way. And part of the story is that economists in the late 50s and early 60s hypothesized that technological change or innovation was the secret or, you know, kind of secret driver, hidden driver of economic growth. And so, you know, I think both parties end up um, buying into that picture. Um, You know, many quarters of the Democrats do, for instance. So, and it's not just Republicans. And the parties have different philosophies of how to get to that regulation or innovation, uh, but they both are interested in doing it. And so, you know, part of what I become interested in, 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 you know, in the last chapter is how both parties try to 
you know, we, we, regulation becomes unpopular, at least for a period, um, you know, in the Clinton administration, for instance, and how both parties end up trying to generate innovation in other ways, even though I think regulation creates te- meaningful technological change. Uh, they're doing it through other means. And the most kind of famous way they do it is by creating these kind of executive branch uh, research programs like uh, Clinton and Gore had the supercar program where they're trying to, you know, make a car that gets to like 100 miles per hour or 100, you know, 100 miles per gallon. Uh, and, you know, George W. Bush has his kind of hydrogen economy thing where they're going to make, I think they called it Freedom Car or something terrible like that, uh, you know, where the hydrogen economy was supposed to set us all free. You know, and it's just like, you know, I, I call them, it's like every president likes killing the other president's pet as soon as they get into office. So, um, you know, George W. Bush kills supercar, creates freedom car. Then Obama comes along, he kills freedom car and announces something else. So I, I think part of what they're doing is really avoiding regulation as the means to generate this technological change and, um, you know, in pushing research, federally funded research as the answer to these problems. And I think, you know, part of what I'm trying to push back on is I think amongst all my kind of progressive friends, they're very pro-scientific research, you know, the kind of Mariana Mazzucato argument that a lot of important technologies have come from government funding. And that's true enough, but I'm just like, you know, like research alone is not enough. You know, we don't have hydrogen cars on the road, uh, even though we put millions or billions of dollars into that. Um, and so really I'm just trying to show that like, you know, regulation is a, is a more sure road to create the change we need than, than throwing money at things. Historians are not fond of speculation, but Vinsel's history stretches into the present with debates over how to regulate autonomous vehicles. The owl of Minerva flies at dusk. Does it get hit by a driverless car? What I wanted to do, the reason I end with self-driving cars uh, is not just to bring it up to the present, but also to kind of try to talk about what history can shed light on these new topics, right? So I'm pretty skeptical that we'll see autonomous vehicles on the road anytime within, like, you know, seriously on the road in a mass way anytime within the next 10 to 20 years. Um, But what what I'm interested in the book is things like, let's talk about the construction of the subject. I mean, I think when you look at the long history of the automobile and you think about different ways of thinking about the person, a lot of autonomous vehicle uh, advocates really have a very skeptical views of human nature, right? Like they think humans are so fundamentally flawed that we are better off replacing them with machines. They make these arguments on Reddit and, you know, the other places they hang out. And I try to draw on some of those kind of web discussions around these kinds of things. So that's the first thing is we can talk about like how the way advocates for this technology fits into a longer history of talk thinking about humans. And the other thing is that, you know, thinking about standards and knowledge communities and how technologies actually get made and come into mass adoption and use, I mean, I don't think it's surprising that the people working on autonomous vehicles are trying to get straight about standardization, you know. 
uh, creating standardized ways of talking about autonomy, holding conferences to work out technical matters, uh, having discussions about, you know, just like the 1920s about how we might have to standardize space, uh, the road and cities to make these things work. Um, so even though it's new and it seems cutting edge and even mo- maybe like sci-fi like, I think the processes behind it are very ordinary and they're exactly what you would expect uh, knowing the history of the, the car. Finzel's next project, a collaboration with historian Andrew Russell, promises to be an exciting critique of innovation and flows naturally out of this book project. Now, it's taken me so long to process this, this interview that is actually coming out soon with the release date of September 2020 and a title, The Innovation Delusion, How Our Obsession with the New Has Disrupted the Work That Matters Most. I asked him to wrap up the interview by sketching out the book for our listeners. I'm just finishing a book with Andy Russell um, as part of our uh, maintainers project. And the book is called The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, and with a, with a subtitle still in flux. And um, what that does is, uh, you know, it's kind of builds on ideas we've been putting forward, uh, uh, kind of beats up on innovation speak uh, and makes fun of Silicon Valley. That's the first third. Uh, tries to show how innovation speak leads us to neglect things like maintenance um, and repair in the second part. And then it tries to put forward a kind of more hopeful vision of ways we can better maintain the world and better care for the world and each other. Um, so it's kind of very different piece of writing. Um, you know, it's popular, it's kind of anecdote and interview based, um, you know, not like my very archivally based uh, automobile regulation book. But I think, you know, like I, I'm very influenced by people like David Edgerton who um, try to, you know, his book Shock of the Old and other stuff he's written have been kind of fundamental to the way I think about the world and just kind of thinking about the ordinary. And so I think that, um, you know, there's a really deep connection between my first book on cars and the, the maintainer stuff. I think that people don't understand all the time, which just has a kind of, um, you know, trying to get into the concrete details of technology in the everyday and how things come to be. Um, and so, you know, I have other projects in mind that where I'm going to go next, but I think that kind of ethos that is a part of the first, these first two projects will continue to be kind of like my orienting way of doing things. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.